Life is lived forward, but it's understood backwards. You do not see it when you're in it. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Como estas, mi amigos and mi amigas? That was the voice of Mr. Bob B. from St. Paul, Minnesota that you heard at the beginning of this episode I believe this is episode number 193. Let's hope I got that right. And you will be hearing so much more from him in just un momento. But first things first. I'm trying to figure out on the fly how to say first. Oh, I believe at first in Spanish. I believe it is primero, if I'm not mistaken. So let's try. So primero things first. Primero, this episode is coming at you and brought to you by Caitlin, by the way, in honor of her father, Dave, Michelle, David, Giovanni, and Gerhard. Do you know what Caitlin, in honor of her father, Dave, Michelle, David, Giovanni and Gerhard did what they went to our website, www.soberspeak.com. They made a, a contribution and that's what they did. They clicked on the little yellow PayPal tab and they made a contribution. Thank you, Caitlin, in honor of your father, Dave, Michelle, David, Giovanni, and Gerhard, this episode is coming right out to youans. I, John M., will be just another bozo on the bus, by the way, will be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am most blessed and most honored and truly privileged to serve all of you listening in. So take a seat around this virtual table and let's get cranked up. No matter who you are or what your past looks like, you are welcome here. It is an open table and we are glad, so glad that you have joined us today. So what happened with me this week? Uh, Well, I went uh, on a little uh, vacation with my familia, my wife and my two children. 
and we had a fantastic time together. And I'm so glad my wife set up all this, uh, set all this up. The lovely Mrs. M. And let me think about what went on this week. Well, let me tell you a couple things that kind of come to mind here. I went deep sea fishing for the first time in my life. Um, it was an experience. So here's what it comes down to, really, is that my son wanted to go. By the way, we went down to Port Aransas, which is on the Gulf of Mexico. For those of you who are not familiar with that area, it's a little. It's close to Corpus Christi, Texas. So we just wanted to go somewhere we where we could drive this year because uh, several different reasons. But anyway, we went down there to the Port Aransas area and we went deep sea fishing. And my son. He said it was on his bucket list. Now, I didn't know you could have a bucket list when you're 15 years old, but apparently it's on his bucket list. And so I took him out there. And so here's what I was, what I was expecting. And by that, I mean, I thought we were going to get on a boat, travel out for 30 minutes, do few hours versus a uh, uh, few hours of fishing, and then come back in with these big O fish, sharks and marlins and all this kind of stuff. But what actually ended up happening is we had a five hour trip, and it was an hour and 45 minutes to get to where we were going. It's about 35 miles out, if I remember right, 35, 40 miles in the ocean. And then it takes an hour and 45 to get back, obviously. And during the trip out there, we hit some, how do you put this? Uh, the seas were kicking up. I think that's how fishermen say it. The seas were kicking up and uh, we got to watch several people throw up in front of us. We were able to hear about several other people that were throwing up. And then on the way back, my son actually, he never got sick. He never threw up, but he definitely was very nauseous and felt very ill from seasickness. So that was quite an experience. And I have a tendency to be a little bit of a germaphobic kind of guy. And what was happening is everyone was throwing up and then they were grabbing the rails. And in order to get up and walk through the boat whatsoever, you had to grab onto all these rails. And then if you went into the restroom, it was, um, how do I say, very hard to hit your target while you were going to the restroom and the restroom was mm, not exactly germaphobic uh, friendly. So anyway, we went through all that. That'll probably be the last time I personally am ever going back at and uh, ever go deep sea fishing again, unless it is a much more controlled environment. I, I know you can take charters out there and all that sort of stuff. Maybe I'll do something like that. But we did get a we did get some fish. Uh, we got uh, these really large red snappers. There was a guy who was on the boat actually who. Somehow was reeling in a hammerhead shark, but the shark broke his pole in hand, rod and reel in hand, and 
the so we so we never did get the the shark. But anyway, we got to get these fish, these red snappers. If you've never been through it before, um, and we got back at like a eight o'clock at night. And they, when they get back up there, uh, there was this one guy, really, really cool guy on the boat who, uh, because I said, I just keep our fish. We're not going to use them or whatever. He said, he said, dude, you have got to experience what this is like. So he cleaned the fish for us. And there's a little restaurant next door and you take your fish to the restaurant next door. And it says something like, you hook them, we cook them. (laughs) (laughs) that's their little thing so basically i walked in there with this trash bag full of red snapper fillets and i handed it to the bartender i had to sit up at the bar because the restaurant was jam-packed me and my son we went up there so i handed to the bartender said can you do something with this he goes how you want them cooked and uh we said blackened and fried and by the way I am a vegan for the most part. I, you know, I'd say I'm 80, 90% vegan. You know, like when my wife cooks, uh, she's a great baker. And so when the lovely Mrs. M uh, stirs up some uh, cookies or whatever the case may be, you know, I'm, I'm not strict, strict. But for the most part, I try to be vegan. But this week... I had fish like four or five times uh, and uh, some of the sides that go with it that are soaked in butter and all that sort of stuff. But I really, really enjoyed the When they cooked this fish, this was the best fish I've ever had in my life. It wasn't fishy. Um, it just tasted fantastic. And they knew how to blacken it. They knew how to fry it. And both me and my son just ate it up. So, you know, it was kind of like a, a victor um, claiming his spoils. Is that? the saying you know what i'm talking about basically we got to enjoy what we cooked so it was kind of cool um the kids went boogie boarding a lot i didn't know what boogie boarding was it's a like a uh what do they, they also call it a body boarding and i was trying to get the difference so what's the difference between a boogie board and a body board and they were trying to tell me it was all the same but the kids were out there in the ocean the place where we were staying was right on the ocean and they you know excuse me I guess it's right on the Gulf. It's not really the ocean per se, but they were out there uh, and, you know, on all the waves and using that thing and, and they really enjoyed it. I, I personally don't enjoy, uh, it, like I said, a lot of you, you've never seen me, but I have a just white as white skin can be. And this, um, this causes me to to burn rather easily. I don't like the sand and all the mess that comes with it, but my family does, right? And I get it. People actually love that, but I didn't do any of that, but they really enjoyed it. Uh, one thing I did enjoy, though, is once again, my son had a bucket list that he wanted to check some things off. And part of that was getting on a helicopter. So we went and got on this helicopter. And here's something I did not realize. I went out to the helicopter place, or we went out to the helicopter place. And the helicopter guy, first thing he said was, uh, once we paid him, he says, okay, do you want the doors on or off? I was like, beg your pardon? Is that really a choice? (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, it's a helicopter. Don't we keep the doors on? And so we, and I said, what's the upside and the downside? And he says, well, it's a lot cooler when you have the doors off and you can see a little bit better. So we took the doors off and every time he would kind of turn to the left or turn to the right, and we, we'd be, you know, I'm like thinking, I, of course we have seatbelts on, right? But I'm thinking, are we going to fall out of this helicopter? But anyway, he went all around the island, and, and we absolutely enjoyed that. Um, what else did I do? I went down to the, the souvenir shops, and we would let them charge us 30 bucks for like simple little T-shirts and take our money. Uh, my daughter actually went into one of the shops, and she got a... Oh, they're, they're little not permanent tattoos. And I forget the name of the, those of you who are into this are going to know. It starts with the H. It's like uh, Hemi or Heather or something like that. Some sort of herb, I believe, that they use to give you non-permanent tattoos. And she got a butterfly. And, you know, to me, it was a big waste of money, but <laughs> she enjoyed it. Um, our road trip was most interesting. So part of the road trip is finding stops and, you know, where you're going to end up landing and which ones are acceptable and all that kind of stuff. And, and there, we have something here. I think it's just in Texas. It's a place called Bucky's. And for those of you who have never heard of Bucky's, I really don't personally get it. it. It's just like this big, it's like a huge convenience store with, with like a, a billion different gas pumps. And our kids like to go in there and they, I, I, I like I said, I don't, I, I don't really get it, but it is crowded. I mean, it took us 30 minutes to get in and out and there's all kinds of people going in there. Speaking of COVID down here in Texas, it's just like it, it, it's like it never existed. Now I see a mask every once in a while, right? And we're vaccinated. All of us are vaccinated. I can't tell who's vaccinated, who's not. But anyway, it was is just um it's almost like it never existed. We went to an aquarium while we were in Corpus Christi. Uh, once again, I went along with the family, just trying to appease everybody. We've been to several of these aquariums before, and they look, all look exactly the same. Ah, they've got fish, and they've got sharks, and then they've got other animals that would never live in the sea. They're just like rodents or something like that. And then they got flamingos that make a lot of sounds, and... You know, you just walk around and then they have a gift shop where they want to take all your money again. People give them their money and, you know, but, but I guess it's all for a good cause. It goes into, you know, like rehabbing the dolphins and all, and all this kind of stuff. But uh, it, it was just um, uh, an, an interesting adventure. I personally, believe it or not, when I'm on vacation, what I like to do more than anything is I like to go to coffee shops and sit there, have a cup of coffee, and I get, I don't know, I just kind of get into a different space in terms of creative stuff, and, and, and I like to work on my sober speak activity, kind of get it caught up, uh, think about things that I like to do. I, I'm This time, I was listening to 
several podcasts while I was in the coffee shops. And I've really been kind of focusing on, I guess, what you would call alternative investments lately. And and I guess what you would call side hustle types of podcasts, uh, just trying to, all, all that kind of financial stuff. It's just very interesting to me. Uh, the the only downside that I can think of a vacation for me, and I've been through this many times before, is my, quote, routine. I, I get out of my routine. I don't like getting out of my routine, but um, you know, like my, my prayer and meditation and, and being able to sleep well and j- just doing a lot of things I do around, uh, the house w- when I'm, when I'm here or just, you know, a- at my home base. And now, by the way, I call my routine a routine. My family calls this obsessive compulsive. <laughs> so, so I guess. You know, you say tomato, I say tomato, but nonetheless, I think that's all I got on my uh, little getaway here. I may think of something in a second, but nonetheless, if you have not been to our website lately, the lovely Mrs. M has really done a great job on getting that... um, I, I I don't know. She, she's just done a real good job with it. And uh, you, you may want to go visit it at www.soberspeak.com. Now, on to Mr. Bob B. from St. Paul, Minnesota. Bob has been sober for 53 years. We are calling this one Life is Live Forward but understood backwards. That's how Bob uh, actually uses that quote during the interview. And as he says, he was a good starter, but never finished anything with class. (laughs) He speaks about his second surrender that came at approximately eight years sober, and I can so much relate to that. Um, uh, one of the quotes from Bob that I absolutely love is he says, I felt like I was dying of thirst while living next to a lake. He also recounts the moment that his sponsor said to him, why are you so afraid of failing? I know you're going to enjoy this. Buckle up, enjoy the ride. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I give to you Mr. Bob B. And I will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this episode. Enjoy Bob B. Okay, everybody. So today we are sitting here with Mr. Bob B. Uh, I would say Bob B is, uh, if there is such a thing, a a royalty. Uh, He's been around for a long time. So Bob, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, uh, give your sobriety date if you wish, and then tell people what area of the country you are sitting in as we speak. I'm Bob. I'm an alcoholic and I've been sober since the 10th of December, 1967. For that, I'm very grateful. And I live in St. Paul, Minnesota. 10th of December, 1967. We talked about it beforehand. That is 53 years, Bob, as you know, and that is quite a long time. Have you seen a lot of changes in AA over that time? Of course. You know, there's great similarities and there's great changes. 
Yeah. Can you talk to us about some of the changes uh, and similarities you've seen over that time? I'm just. Well, I think the similarities is in the strength of our program and the 12 steps. I think there's as much good sponsorship and as much book use today as there has ever been in Alcoholics Anonymous. People talk about going back to the way A was in the old days, and I don't think it was any better. We have some marvelous people who brought us through the early years of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I, I think today it's a practical experience. <clears throat> There's strong sponsorship and strong meetings and still a very dedication to the program. The biggest change that I see is from the home group to kind of meetings. I mean, there are people that people go to an enormous amount of meetings today, more, more so than they did when I came in. And the home group is no longer the main functioning group. It is in some places, but it, it's been replaced by attendance at meetings, not a particular devotion to a home group. When you go to those uh, conferences uh, nowadays, I know you hadn't been in a while. I know you took a little time off, but do you have a, uh, do you ever win the, you know, most sober award, you know, where they have the countdown and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, that's generally a disappointment. I've been winning it. I win it fairly often these days. And it's not Why do you say it's a disappointment? Well, because, you know, we always wanted to hang out with the big guys, and then you end up kind of being in a position where you're the longest sober and you don't feel like there's any entitlement that should be attached to that. And being the longest sober person is, I'd rather have three more people that were sober longer than me be there to interact with. Yeah, understood. Well, um, and I told you this a little bit when I was, before we started, or we talked about this a little bit, and that is when I first got sober, Bob, which is back in uh, 89, uh, there was this guy here in the Texas area. I don't think he's with us anymore. I don't know if you know him, George Burnett. Uh, he was a taper. Yeah, great guy. Yeah. He is, and his yeah. wife, Beverly, is still with us. Yeah, I knew George well. yeah. yeah. I had and a so in Texas, he, Texas for a long time. Yeah. So that's where I am. I'm down here in uh, Texas, the Dallas area. And he he had a house out in uh, Louisville. And I would drive out there to his house in Louisville. And I would, uh, you know, have, I'd say, I want, you know, like 10 speaker tapes. And he would always put one of yours in my hand because I would just trust him on recommendations. And I would take those tapes and I traveled a lot for business at the time. And I would ride around and I would listen to your talk. And uh, it definitely helped me get through my early years. And so thank you, sir, for You're your welcome. service. All right. So let's, uh, let's talk about your story a little bit. And we're going to kind of meander here. Uh, but, you know... Why don't you tell me, you know, where it started for you? You know, um, what kind of was the the launching pad, if you will, to get into Alcoholics Anonymous? And just kind of start telling right, me about it. I'll do a five or ten minute. Uh, born and raised in St. Paul, Minnesota. Started drinking when I was a freshman in high school. I went to a military high school and a college campus. We drank in high school like most people drink in college. <clears throat> we had fraternities. Uh it was a Catholic school. I never knew Catholics drink as much or more than others, but if we're having a contest, I'm bringing my people. And uh, <laughs> I developed, you know, we drank a lot uh, for, for young people. And by the time I finished high school, uh, 
everybody was kind of recognizing that I did it differently and had some issue. I did not recognize that, but they were trying to get me help. I went away to school thinking that it would get me away from the police and my parents. And uh, I worked my way up to be the class drunk at Notre Dame and walked my way out in the middle of my senior year with the in the yearbook with my class ring. I was, <laughs> I was in civil engineering carrying 25 credits a semester going to school one day a week. <laughs> that is not a, that is not a winning combination, and um, I was due to be commissioned because I was an ROTC, and I had to get a medical release. And the medical release that I got was for alcoholism. I was diagnosed an alcoholic when I was seventeen, seventeen or eighteen. I thought that was just the most stupid thing in the world, but it got me out of there. I came home to a set of very disappointed parents. I finished school at St. Thomas University. Uh, and but, when you said you were diagnosed as an alcoholic, can, can you walk me through that? Like, who did that diagnosis and how'd that come a, about? A psychiatrist did it. I was under psychiatric, you know, once or twice a year, I'd have a car accident or an arrest or some big enough thing that everybody thought I needed some help. And it was a psychiatrist that was a pretty knowledgeable guy. And uh, later, uh, once I got sober, he would refer patients to me than I would take to AA. <laughs> and uh, so, he, so did he actually refer you to AA as well? Was no, it, it wasn't as no, well he known? No, he didn't. Then. He just diagnosed it. He read, yeah, he, he wanted me actually to go to Hazelwood. And uh, I, I just, uh, at that young age, you know, freshman in high school, freshman in college, I didn't, uh, I don't know, I wasn't ready to do it. And, uh, but I, uh, when I finished school, uh, my father asked me to leave home. He said, we love you, but we don't know what to do with you. And I worked at a liquor store for six months. And then I worked as a, as a waiter downtown Minneapolis for about six months. I'm drinking a fifth a day. No one knows where I am. I'm biding time during uh, the Vietnam War is on. I'm going to get drafted. Um, and then I got into a fight. got my face kicked in. I got fired as a waiter. No place to go. I went home. When I moved back, in the house. They allowed me to move back in the house, they asked me not to drink, which I wasn't able to do. I mean, the full court press of trying to put get my act together. I got back together with the woman that I had gone with for a year and a half. And today, she's my very lovely wife, Linda, a very active member of Al-Anon. Uh, uh, the service, uh, I got accepted to officer candidate school, and then they lost my file. And they asked me to take the physical again for the fourth time and they failed me for a hearing problem. So I didn't have to go to <laughs> Vietnam. And uh, then I got a, a job as a, an executive trainee at a manufacturing concern, bought my first car and I thought, wow, I'm gonna be a grown up." Only I couldn't quit drinking. Uh, just before I went back to my senior year in Notre Dame, I was beaten up, robbed, rolled, pistol whipped, shot at, and thrown out of the second story of a hotel, ended up in the state of Ended up in a psych ward. And, uh, okay, well, well, hold on a second there. <laughs> Just There was a couple of details that were kind of interesting to me. You got thrown out of the second floor of a hotel. Yeah. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, no, I don't want to give any more details than that. It was, it was, uh, I was around some bad people who were trying to get me to sign some traveler's checks, and I wasn't willing to do so. So they roughed me up a little bit. I understand. Uh, so I ended up in a psych ward. They were not going to let me go back to school. I was allowed to go back to school, talk my way out of that. And I went back and I didn't drink for around two months. And I didn't. And I thought, number one, I could prove that I could quit. And number two, I'm still a jerk. I'm still a bad student. I'm not 
what I thought you were telling me I'd become if I just quit drinking. And uh, but now when I was getting married, I thought you know getting married, starting a family would be what would you know I could get sober. Only I couldn't. Now I'm the company drunk. I'm sleeping my hangovers off in the dark room of the company. When I went back and I quit that job after about six months. When I went back to make amends with the guy who hired me, he said, God, you interviewed so well. And I said, yeah, we do. We just have performance issues, <laughs> but we interview. <laughs> and uh, uh, I took a, a sales job and I had that relatively short period of time. And I went out on a four-day drunk and woke up some Thursday in July of 1967, hugging the toilet, doing my morning exercise. And that was my moment. I, uh, I was as disgusted with me as any of my family or anybody else had anything to do with me. I, I just was as mystified. I was a guy who looked like I should do very well. I had a lot of privileges going to Notre Dame, was, of which was one. But uh, I was a good starter, and I never finished almost anything with class. And uh, I called AA. And they sent two guys out to meet me at a cafe, and they sat me down in the booth. One guy had six years, one guy had six months. And they said, we're from AA. We had a drinking problem, found an answer for it. Want to share it with you. I hope it helps you. If it doesn't help you, don't worry about it. It helps us talking to guys like you. And they told me their stories. I had been in front of every kind of help a young person could get, religious, medical, legal. I had never you know, in the 10 different locations that I was put in front of help, I'd never talked to another person who had a drinking problem. And these two men in 45 minutes altered my life. We have many traditions in AA, maybe the most wonderful of which is that we share our experience, strength, and hope. I couldn't argue with what they said. I might have not wanted to do what they recommended, but I knew without question what they were sharing with me was a story of integrity and, and their own experience. I went to my first meeting that night. I drank twice after that night, once after a month on a business trip to the West Coast, and once after three months on my honeymoon. Linda and I honeymooned in Mexico, and I had my last drink on the airplane on the way home. You know, those cliffs in Mexico where the divers died? I dove off those cliffs on my last drunk. I was in the audience watching a world's high diving contest. I thought, God, that's not so tough. And I Dove off the public landing, climbed up to about 90 feet, split my swimsuit, cut my leg. My wife is going absolutely <laughs> bad shit, oh, no. <laughs> thinking she's going to lose her husband after. And if I would have jumped, which I was thinking of doing, I would have died. You have to get out 30 feet to hit the channel. And yeah. for some reason, I decided to dive at the last minute, and God watches after fools and drugs. And when I got <laughs> home, uh, I went and talked with my sponsor, and that's, you know, my sponsor was a Second World War guy, lost half his crew in a bomb disposal unit in Italy, mailman. Uh, he was a 12-step champion of the group that I attended. There were a couple of hundred members of the group I attended, uh, different smaller groups we called squads meeting weekly. And he was by far the 12-step guy, and I got to be his wingman. So I, everything I've done in Alcoholics Anonymous from making coffee to being a delegate was because of, I copied my sponsor's experience. And uh, in Minnesota, 95% of the meetings were closed step discussion meetings. You had the meeting and you gave the step for five, six, seven minutes. 
then we broke up into two groups and, and discussed how the step applied in our lives. So we were very dedicated to the steps. And uh, that was a great foundation for me uh, when I came in. And then the, the, the second most difficult thing for me, I'm 23 when I came in, 24 when I had my last drink by a week. I'm a young guy. I don't have much of a life. I, you know, I wasn't married. I didn't really have a career. Now I've got a, you know, after about a year uh, in AA, I, 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 or half a year, I started to work for my dad, which lasted as long as we both could stand it. But for about two years, I worked for my father. I was the world's absolute worst employee. And all I wanted to do is go to AA. I was just enamored with Alcoholics Anonymous. I was kind of on a honeymoon for about the first nine months. I didn't have a very good sense of my defects of character. During my second year, I got a real good picture of my defects of character. I was a money spender. I spent more money than I made. If you end up doing that, you're going to be in debt. I had work. That's problems. what I hear. I had trouble getting up in the morning. I had trouble going to, you know, which I found out later had something to do with when I went to bed. But I, you know, I had trouble getting to work, staying at work, and I had trouble working at work. Other than that, I was a pretty good worker. <laughs> uh, I was an unhelpful husband because I'm at AA all the time. We started to have kids, and my wife, who was a registered nurse, was pulling double duty. And, uh, I had a gambling problem, kind of more of a hobby, four or five hours a day, four or five days a week. And uh, I was making five grand a year playing backgammon in 1967. That was like a second job. And uh, I figured, I, I don't know what I thought. I look back on it, it's just kind of a mystery to me that, that I was unable to effectively remove these defects of character. And I thought, okay, I'll buy it. If I'm I'm an alcoholic, if I'm an alcoholic and AA's got the answer, I've got these other things that are going on. And, and if AA's got the answer, they ought to be dealt with. And hell, it might take a year. Well, hell, it might take 53 is what the hell it might take. And I <laughs> thought that if you get me sober and I put, to, put the steps in my life, these significant defects of character, I should be able to ameliorate. I found myself at four and five and six years. By five or six years, they were eating my lunch. I'm telling my sponsor about 65% of what's going on. I know you guys in Texas tell your sponsor 100%, but I'm, I'm only telling myself 65%. <laughs> Life is lived forward, but it's understood backwards. You do not see it when you're in it. And uh, finally, I uh, at eight years of sobriety, I was ready to put a gun in my mouth. I wasn't thinking about drinking, but I was thinking about committing suicide. I just was so tired about being a jerk. I, I just, uh, I, you know, I felt like a phony. I'm By this time, I'm very active in AA. I'm sponsoring people. I'm giving talks. I'm active in service. And from the outside, I had the merit badges and looked like I was a hell of a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. From my viewpoint, I, I thought my life was significantly unmanageable and that concerned me greatly. And uh, I didn't know, I really did not know what to do out of desperation. I went back. I knew I had to find out what God had to do with Wednesday. That was the people who I, I admired the most, the old timers in AA had a connection with God that was, I had a lot of information about God. I've been a Catholic high school, grade school and university, but I, I did not have an effective relationship with God that I, that his power came into my life and allowed me 
my life to be manageable with his with his care. And but I figured, hell, if I go to God now, I, I've got to get rid of one or two of these big issues, or there's not much sense of going to God. And that kept me for about two years from turning myself in. And finally, at around eight years, I uh, had a second surrender, and I went to my sponsor, and I said, uh, "We." I took my first two fist steps with clergy, which is what we did in our our particular group. But I started to hear about people in California doing it. So I started to go through the steps for the third time, sober about eight years. I did the first step was no brainer. You know, room temperature IQ could have figured out that I was powerless and unmanageable. What I discovered is I had lost step two. And uh, I believed it for you. I believed it for us. I didn't believe it for me because I'm eight years sober and I'm on the down escalator trying to walk up and my life's a mess. I took step three. You know, but I started to see people with bigger problems than I had with smiles on their faces walking through the walls I was avoiding with dignity and grace. And I came to believe again that God would restore Bob to sanity. I did step three with my sponsor in his office on my knees. We didn't do that much in those days, but I, again, started to hear people from California mostly talk about doing that. And I wanted to cross the T's and dot the I's. And when I got to my first step, I asked my sponsor, I said, I want to do this with you, my fourth and fifth. I said, I feel like I'm dying of thirst lying next to a lake. I said, I know what to do. I just can't or won't do it. I am so goddamn sick and tired of can't or won't do it that I could just spit. And I said, when, I, when I'm done with my fifth step, I think I'm ready to effectively do what you recommend. <clears throat> and I did my fourth and fifth step with them. Best fifth step, best fourth step I think I've ever taken. Because of the level of pain that I was, I had no illusions and I had no self-protection. I was willing to talk about anything that was going on in my life. <clears throat> he recommended that I find a psychologist that had to do with work. And um, he said, you got a lot of issues around work and money and failure and success. My dad was a pretty successful guy, and I thought I'd never be as good as my old man, all that sort of stuff. I did not want to go to a psychologist that made me look like my program wasn't very good. <laughs> Hello. And uh, and then the psychologist wanted to get my wife involved, and I, I did not. When your wife's in the room, there's a lot more information in the room than I think is necessary. And there's a lot of information <laughs> in the room that makes you look bad. So, I, you know, I really didn't want Linda in the room. And then later he wanted my kids in the room somewhat. They were really young. But I promised I would follow through with this, and I did. And uh, it was one of the more important things that happened to me. Uh, I was explaining to him that my company was going bankrupt, and I was probably going to have to file bankruptcy, put my name on the paper, and lose everything I had. And he looked at me, and he said, why are you so afraid of failing? And I wanted to punch him, I mean, I, I, that, which is not my way. I, uh, I felt like he punched me. And uh, I said, look, you're a doctor. You file bankruptcy. You just wait six months, pound your sign on another door, and you're making a 100 grand within a year. I said, I've lived in this city all my life. I'm in the real estate investment business. I said, I'm going to lose everything I had. Nod your head up and down if you understand that. And he looked at me, and he said, uh, he looked at my wife and said, if you're Linda, if Bob lost everything he had, would he lose you? My wife said, no, wouldn't lose me. 
he asked the kids that same question. And they said, of course, I wouldn't lose. If you can't lose, you can't play. What I discovered in that man's office was fear. Now, you think a guy who's done three inventories would know more about fear than I did. I thought fear was dogs, snakes, and tall buildings. We were not as good with the book in, in 73, 74, 75 as we are today. And I must have just kind of skimmed through fear. And what I discovered is I'm afraid of being a father. I'm afraid of being a husband. I'm afraid of failure. I'm afraid of work. You know, I'm swimming in fear. Well, Chuck used to talk about the two fish swimming in the ocean and the other one fish says, isn't the ocean wonderful? And the other fish says, what's the ocean? I'm immersed in fear. And uh, about a week later, I had a horrible day where I skipped work and got in a backgammon game. I won 500 bucks, got in a fight with my wife and slapped one of the kids. I'm in my living room, 11 o'clock at night, and I'm just despairing. I just, God dang it. I, I just, and I was given, uh, I got, I'm saying I've tried as hard as I know how to try, ineffectively, but I tried as hard as I know how to, to clean up my act, and I had failed. And for whatever reason, I was able to stand naked in front of those words for the, maybe for the first time. And I was given the opportunity to take the six and the seven step of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous at a depth that I had not taken them before. The six steps said that we we're entirely ready to have God, not Bob, remove our defects of character. The seven steps said we humbly ask him to remove his shortcomings. I had spent eight years trying to get rid of them. I don't have the power. I have the responsibility, but it happens through me, not by me. I'm the pipe, not the well. The, the doctor creates a fertile environment, creates an atmosphere in which healing can take place and God heals. I don't change. The program creates a, an atmosphere of, you know, the honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness and the attitude of the sixth and seventh step. It creates a mental condition and spiritual condition in which God can act through these things and change me, and I'm changed. And that night changed my life. I quit gambling that night. I turned the checkbook over to my wife. I made appointments with my sponsor about going to work, staying at work, and working at work. I spent thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours trying to learn how to be a better parent. I think having kids is like having a bowling alley installed in your head. I think it takes 125% of whatever you have. It is a very demanding process, and the manual is a little skinny. And my life took off like it was on a rocket ship. All of a sudden, the guy who I've always been, you know, my mother always said, you're not very smart, Bob, dress well. But <laughs> I, I have always been smart. I just haven't been effective. I was the kid who I was a, really a smart kid in, in school and kind of skated by doing B to A, a minus work. And it wasn't very hard for me. Uh, I was, I've always looked for the easier, softer way, and I was ineffective at school and at work and life. And um, all of a sudden, my prayer, one of the things I did during that day, I hired someone to get me up. They called me at 5.30, and I went to 6 o'clock Mass five days a week. And after Mass, I went to the back of the church, and I prayed. I said, God, give me your mind. I don't know what to do, which was BS. I knew exactly what to do. I just hadn't done it. And I'll be darned, I really think that's what happened to me at eight years of sobriety. I believe that in my second surrender, that God gave me his mind. And all of a sudden, the guy that was not effective started to be effective as a husband, as a father, 
and as a worker. And the guy who was, you know, we created a company with, you know, hundreds of, a couple of hundred of employees. And I was making enough money to burn a wet elephant. And life was very different for those years. Uh, later in 1980, in the mid-1980s, you changed the tax act and I went broke. Um, lost everything I had, which was like tearing the skin off my body. And here I am 20 years sober, having lost everything that I had. And I, I don't think God arranged the real estate collapse to teach me a lesson. But I think the lesson that I was to learn in that process was what life, who I was with money and who I was without money, which ended up being an important lesson in my life. Um, sobriety does not exempt us from life. And so if you're going to be sober and, and working in AA for a long time, you're going to have issues with your sponsor, maybe with your group. You're going to have work issues or health issues or marital issues. Uh, and uh, that's in some ways the bad news. The good, the good news is it's just life. And uh, if you have a program and a God and a wonderful partner, as I have, and three wonderful boys, uh, you can easily deal with it with the help of the program and your God. You're not the only person in the world that has those issues. And uh, the program couldn't be better, couldn't be a better place to start your life over and to build a platform to continue. So. Let me do a little break here. We will be continuing our conversation with Bob B. In just a moment, just a reminder, you're listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the web at www.soberspeak.com. Uh, there you can also find the donate button you can use if and only if the spirit moves you to do such. Please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contribution. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. Bob B. That's fascinating. I have a couple of follow-up questions here. Um, so I know that you have, you know, and on the beginning I described you as a royalty. I don't know if you'd see it that way. I don't like, I, kind I don't of like a, those words. You don't like those. Okay. So, and that's kind of what I was going to, <clears throat> to ask you about the, you, uh, you're well known within Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, and, you know, that probably has an upside and downside. So what can you describe your life and kind of the ups and downs you've been through as, you know, what is known as a circuit speaker and you can call it different things, but what has been your experience with that? I don't, even though I've been a circus speaker for probably 30 years of that, I had to deal with my wife. I did one a month. I got asked 50 or 60 times a year to talk. And for many of those years, I just talked once a month. I cheated a little bit, so it ended up being more like 15. But And then later in life, our children were raised, and she started traveling with me, and I started to do quite a bit more. Um, in Minnesota, uh, I don't think – I guess I, I'm well-known in Minnesota. I started the Gopher State Roundup and did some – you know, I, I've been an active member. But mostly, I'm not royalty. I'm just a member. I really, and I've been able to stay, I, I think that's easier in the Midwest 
you know, in California, you get not only do you give if you're a conference speaker, you know, you're giving talks two or three days a week at groups all over. Well, that you know, in Minnesota, that wasn't the case. And I mean, I was much more able to be in, and in Texas, which is we had a home in Texas and went down there for a couple of months a year. Uh, you know, I was just a member. And I, I think a relatively important member because I'm sober a long time, you know, so I'm, I'm the old guy. So my life wasn't, uh, and I, most of my life was lived with people who were more sober than I was. I mean, the, the shoulders I stand on and my wife stand on, uh, the people that, the important people in our lives were just extraordinary. I went to conferences a lot in my early sobriety and I got to know, I got to hear and know many of the, you know, if you went back through tapes and you asked to taper today to go back and give you, you know, I knew all those people and they helped build a, you know, a platform from which my wife and I lived our lives. I want to talk about your uh, sponsor a little bit. He's actually the gentleman who referred me over to you, Tim H. Uh, how long's Tim been your sponsor? A couple of years, a year and a half, maybe two years. I had my sponsor for 43 years. And then when he died, I asked Dick Martin, who was Dicoke Tapes out of Omaha, Nebraska. And I had Dick for five years, wonderful man. And uh, when Dick died, I was sponsoring Howard Polans, had for about five years, and Howard and I started sponsoring each other. And after five years, Howard passed away. And, you know, a lot of guys always want someone with more sobriety. It got to be tougher and tougher to find someone with more sobriety. Not impossible, but I wanted a guy who was active and uh, had, you know, 30 years of sobriety or more and, and uh, still was active with the steps. And Tim Highland uh, met those criteria. He had 29 years. He just turned 30. And uh, it's been a great relationship. He's coming here on Thursday. And I'm very much looking forward to we're going to go down and do a retreat together. And uh, he's a, a great guy. And I've been around long enough to know how to use a sponsor and be sponsy. So that was kind of dovetailing into my next question. I, I get tons of people who write in uh, on the podcast and, you know, they want to know, I'm sure you've heard it before. How do I find a sponsor? How do I pick a sponsor? How do you use a sponsor? And I know it's kind of a unique thing for everybody, but why don't you give me your kind of a uh, view on uh, sponsorship? If you're having trouble finding a sponsor, I, I think you're not going to enough meetings. I, I think if you were at meetings, watching people, you'd find people who you were attracted to. You'd find people. Now, in Minnesota, we're talking about the steps all the time in, in our meetings. You start to hear people who are doing step work that you may or may not be doing. And today, where everybody is taking people through the book, they didn't used to do that, you know, when I first came in. Um, you know, but you don't need you don't need a perfect sponsor. I mean, my first sponsor, you would not have asked necessarily to go give, uh, you know, weekends you know, talk on the steps, but he, he was my big book. I mean, he lived it as well as any man I've ever been around, you know, and those, I mean, those are people that populate our meetings all over the place. You don't need someone perfect. And one of the great tests uh, is when you start to find out the humanity of your sponsor, you know, that, you know, you, when you start to find information, the imperfections that you could neutralize your sponsor, if you wanted to, and it's a, 
it's kind of a spiritual test. I mean, because you have the same problems and, um, you know, we, we, we need to be careful about where we wield that knife. Yeah, I remember uh, my sponsor, actually, when I first asked him to be my sponsor, he's the same guy today since 89. And uh, he said, eventually, he said to me that you are going to experience, you're going to figure out that I'm not perfect eventually. And you're going to possibly say to yourself, you know, maybe I need somebody else. And that's okay for you to say that. Let's just have a conversation. And we definitely came to that point. Uh, and I tell guys the same thing today. Um, you talked about your wife and your kids, and uh, I, I know you just kind of briefly touched on it, but uh, to me, that's a fascinating part of what has gone on with you. Uh, are, do you want to dive into that a little bit further? You said your wife's in Al-Anon, right? And kind of the, the I guess, periods that you went through with your family? Yeah, well, she and she was an RN. We started to have, we have three boys, they're 53, and the youngest is 40. Um, my, as I say, my wife was an RN. She's just a great woman, and we and and you know we're, we have similar backgrounds. We both went to Catholic schools and university. I got fixed up with her when she came up to Minnesota to go. Uh, I'll tell you, the first eight years were horribly hard on her. It is uh, in 19, in two thousand and eight, we started to have financial problems again. Uh, it's always tough. Explaining to your wife that you have financial problems again is tougher the second time than the first time. And um, we started, uh, she, and she never liked talking very much. She'd talk a couple of times a year. But when, when we started to pray for our lives to get back on course, she started to think maybe I had to say yes more often. And so I found myself at conferences listening to her, Ellen, on talking when she went through the first eight years married to me as an ineffective husband. It was a tough thing to listen to. And uh mm. I couldn't be more great. Today we're on the same page and uh, I think have a love for each other. That's very cool. I mean, the program just lends itself. The program's a movement towards love. I mean, you can talk about it in all sorts of different ways, but it's removing the unworkability of your life and what's left is love. And I'm able to be the husband that I think she wants and I'm able to be the father that I think my children want. And, and there's, uh, there's love in our home, in our family. We talked about this briefly on the front end about, you know, the AA as it was and as it is today and the different perceptions that people have and such. But I'm I'm curious about your um, either optimism or lack of optimism for uh, AA and how you think it's going to be best to pass that message on and along as time moves on. Yeah, <clears throat> I think intellectually you could make a case that we're going to have problems. Where the hell are people going to go? I mean, if you were, if you were right now, you make a decision that you no longer can be an AA. Where the hell are you going to go? I mean, there is no other place in my mind, not even close to another place where there is recovery available at the level that we have in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the evidence of being able to walk into a room with, you know, anywhere from 10 to 100 people whose lives have been dramatically changed. I mean, it is not a goofy sort of thing when you talk about taking people through a process to have a spiritual awakening. I mean, if you talked about that to most people outside, 
you know, they think you were goofy that you were, you know, go play with your tambourine someplace else. I mean, it, they would not get it. And we talk about that. We're not surprised by that at all. We have seen these dramatic changes in people's lives. We are, I mean, it is astounding that we've been given the keys to the kingdom to be in a process that our own lives are healed and then be able to share it. So I don't, I really don't think I'm just being chauvinistic when I say, I don't think there's any place else to go. I think in large numbers, Alcoholics Anonymous is always going to be the answer. What about this theory that the message of AA is being diluted as time goes on? What are your thoughts on that? I think that's nonsense. I think we're more committed to the book and to the steps and to sponsorship than we ever have been. I mean, I, go back in your own memory. You've been sober 35 years. I mean, we're 33. <clears throat> people weren't talking about the steps as often and taking people through the book and all this sort of thing. I mean, Joe and Charlie created a renaissance in the mid-70s, got us back more interested in the book and uh that's lasted i mean that is it's just been a uh, a terrific thing and i don't think it's being diluted people were worried about drug addicts you know but it's just the nature of what it is today i mean people are poly drug users i mean it is not and that has not proved to be more effective for us if we would have pushed those people to be an na i mean and they had drinking problems i mean i don't feel we're being invaded by people who don't belong you know, we we occasionally get people because there's no membership criteria. But by and large, I, I keep feeling very comfortable with who's coming in and very comfortable with what I see. You mentioned Joe and Charlie there. Do you have who who were uh, like you've been an influence on a lot of people? You were an influence on me, and I mean that as a compliment. Were there influences on you in the early days that you still? Uh, remember and kind of think about? I think in the early days, you know, we used to, I started a conference that has 8,000 people called the Gopher State Roundup. And for the first five years, we had Chamberlain come every year, Cease Corrigal come every year, Tom Breen come every year, Mac Cheater come every year. They were just our favorite people. They uh, And Wes, Wesley Parrish and David Aronofsky. But uh, the, one of the main influences on my life was a guy by the name of Bob White from from Texas. And that's why I built a home. After Bob died, I built a home. I bought a home with Jerry Jones, who's a Dallas guy. And Jerry and I were very close friends. We bought a home together. And then later I built another home. And we we went to Whitney, Texas for, and Marceline was Linda's sponsor. And uh, so, and there were just, you know, Dave Cook. There were just people all over the place, uh, you know, that... Uh, in Texas AA, Texas had some of the best, I mean, the combination of Southern and Western, it just had some of the best Al-Anon in the world and some of the best AA. You uh, mentioned earlier, I, I want to go back to that that part about the um, your eight years. Uh, I know you touched on it and you talked about it and it's a big piece of your story. Um, but do you find, like when you share that story at a conference, do you find a lot of people coming up and saying, hey, I was five, six, seven, eight years, whatever it is, sober, yeah. and I went through the same experience? I think is the that... majority of people <clears throat> have a second surrender somewhere between five and 15 years. They run out of, I think their first approach is more uh, mechanical, maybe a little bit there not as deeply spiritual as 
as it as it has a tendency. It's not as deep as it as it tends to be later. And um, uh, but it is uh, one of the most difficult things today. Is you take a guy with thirty years of sobriety, he's got an answer for everything. You could ask him to give you a five minute talk on any subject in AA, and he could do that acapella without any problem whatsoever. So when there are really major issues going on with marriage, with health, with jobs, with children, uh, the tendency is to say, "I know what to do." I mean, I know the steps. I'm you know sponsoring all these. The tendency is to rely on your knowledge rather than really rely on God. It's like we really think we know the answers and we really think, we, yeah, I'm relying on God. What the hell you think I'm doing an AA? I really think that for a lot of the issues that people have in middle and later sobriety, uh, they're relying on psychology and they're relying on their knowledge of the program rather than the spiritual grounding, which is different. When God is in the picture, the resolution is different. Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit uh, because there's going to be people listening and they're saying, yeah, I understand that I need to have God in my life, but exactly how do I do that? So how, how does that, um, what are, I mean, and maybe the steps, I just want to get your version on, you know, how do you get God in your life? Yeah, I mean, it's, if I some if you ask me what I did with step eleven, you know I read sixty six through you know eighty six through eighty eight. I read twenty meditation books a day. I meditate daily. Uh, I go to seven to ten meetings a week. I have a practice. It is uh, so I am grounded. I didn't always do that. I'm an old guy. I've got time. It's not an issue. And with with Zoom today, you go to these meetings, and the ones I'm going to are some of the best I've ever been to. But there's a way of knowing. And, and once you really start to have a spiritual experience in Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, have a guidance, you start to have access to a wisdom that you've never had access to before. Your life starts to change. It starts to look differently. And... Um, I think that if you and continuing that for a lifetime is a is a real challenge. I mean, continuing anything for a lifetime, living in the same city, being married to the same woman, you know, your relationship with your children. But I really think that if you're if you're working with people, now you don't have to sponsor twenty five people, but if you every every once in a while get a pigeon and take them through the book, and and you have people in your life that you're sponsoring. I really think that that's the difference. I think people who don't do that get bored, and they they're so and they're going to meetings for what they want. And uh, when you are going to meetings, I think to be there for other people, uh, it's a better attitude to bring through the door. You just use the term pigeon. I know there's going to be a lot of people listening to this that. Uh... Uh, may not be familiar with that term, but uh, that is, you want to explain what that is? Sponsee. Yeah, sponsee. I don't know where that term started. Do you have any idea? No. Who knows? Uh, and one last question. You mentioned Zoom there a second ago. Uh, what has been your experience over the past year in terms of recovery and um 
the the pandemic and Zoom and what are your thoughts on that? I'm actually kind of having a better AA experience during that year than I had prior. Um, there was a meeting I was going to in Minneapolis. It was two days a week. I was going to one day on Wednesday, and it was called the Rojo Group, R-O-J-O. And for whatever reason, during the pandemic, they started having Zoom meetings the other five days and Wednesdays and Thursdays. And I go to that meeting at 7 o'clock in the morning uh, every day, 8 o'clock on Saturdays, 9 o'clock on Sunday. And it is the strongest group of men. Now the meetings, which those first weekday meetings were 25 people, now they're 100. And the meetings are a discussion meeting. We read you know, some of the meditation books that AAs, you know, use some of it, AA literature, some of it not. And there's a group, there's a probably seven, eight, 10 people on that screen that I sponsored that I, I recommend that they take a look at it and they liked it well enough that they stayed. And, and that's what happens, how the group grew to a hundred. It is one of the finest experiences I've had, so I'm blessed. It is, and then I'm also, you know, now I'm talking again, so I'm giving talks and I'm going to other meetings. But I, I really think, thank God that we've had this. Uh, it may not be the in-person uh, equivalent for a lot of people, but it's pretty darn wonderful. Do you find you get as much out of the meetings uh, on Zoom as you would in person? I do. I actually think I, I may even get more. I can look at every, I see every face as if I'm four feet away, I see their name and I, I find myself being able to recognize more people and know more about them because of the intimacy of the screen. Okay. So you mentioned that meeting. I know there's going to be people listening to this who may think to themselves, I, I would like to go to that meeting at some point. Is if, it you write, if you write down the, I can tell you the code right now, it's 954 251442. Is there 442? And the, and the password, is password is capital R, small case OJO, Spanish word for red. Yep. Seven o'clock every day of the week, eight o'clock on Saturdays. So it's 954251442. Right. And just so everybody knows, that is central time uh, for those yeah, listening central time. Uh, in other countries. This has been a pleasure, Bob B. Thank I you. really appreciate it. Uh, I know you weren't exactly sure what to expect. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and probably my fault for not explaining it correctly, no, but I, no. I, I, hope to, I hope this turned out to be a pleasure for you. It did. It was enjoyable. Thank you. God bless you, my friend. Uh, hopefully, uh, our paths will cross soon, and I'll be able to meet you eyeball to eyeball. So be it. I'm just I hope gonna, that's true. I'm going to read from uh, page 164 of the big book here. Um, it says, excuse me, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us, like me and Bob, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, thank you so much, Bob. God bless. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bob. B, thank you so much again. 
if you are listening and you would like to get some sort of comment to Bob B or any of the other guests that we have had on the podcast, feel free to reach out to me at John, J-O-H-N at SoberSpeak.com and I will be happy to pass along your comments. Now, on to a little bit of a listener feedback. Jim writes in. Jim says, Happy Father's Day. You could tell this is, uh, I'm just catching up with uh, a lot of my listener feedback. John says, excuse me, Jim says to me, hey, John, you are not my dad. This is, uh, I love Jim. He's a gentleman who lives in North Carolina. He's just, he's just a class act. And uh, he says, hey, John, you are not my dad, but you are one of my spiritual brothers in AA. So I wanted to wish you a wonderful Father's Day. And I want to thank you for everything you do for us, Sober Speak listeners. I have one wish and one regret about Sober Speak. And that is, I wish you could hear my mind every time I think, man, John is so insightful with that question, so sensitive to the emotional place where the speaker is and where I am right now, unquote. Especially lately with Matthew M, when he starts choking up, you've got to enter knack for being emotionally with him and with me and for leading us all through the moment to the next aha moment and the next smile. That's a rare quality, John, uh, a true gift from God. And my regret is that I don't call or write you every time you do it. I'm going to get better about that. Best to you, Shannon, hugs to your kids, and thanks again, thanks again, John, Jim S. Jim, you like I said earlier, you are a class act. Thank you for writing in, and happy Father's Day right at you, right back at you, a little bit uh, belated there. Thanks for writing in, Jim. Derek writes in, and Derek says, John, I celebrated 11 years on June 13th. So my sobriety date is June 13th, 2010. I'm from Ohio. By the way, congrats on the 11 years, Derek. (laughs) That's great. Uh, I'm from Ohio and I got sober in Toledo. Oh, Toledo. Isn't that a song by like Boz Skaggs? Oh, no, 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 no. It's not Toledo. It's Lido. (laughs) My apologies, but I think as a kid, I always thought it was Toledo. Nonetheless, I'm from Ohio and I got sober in Toledo with some very old school, hard nosed AAs. Thank God for them. Triple exclamation point. I found you were searching for sobriety podcasts. I work crazy hours and meetings are hard for me to come by. So your podcasts are a blessing, Derek. And I, I concur. Thank God for those very old school, hard-nosed AA folks. And uh, I bring a lot of them on the program here, and I'm glad they're out there. Thank you, Derek. Darren writes in, not not Derek, but Darren. It's, it's, it's a Derek and Darren fest here. And Darren says, 
Hi, John M. I have been enjoying the podcast on my daily walks. I found you on my Apple podcast search when I was looking for AA-related pods. Oh, he's cool. I like that, pods. I really enjoy your selection of speakers, John. Thank you so much for your service. My name is Darren G. I live in Santa Rosa, California. I just, I, I, I don't know why, but I put the, uh, with the rolling R on that. It just sounded like the right thing to do. Santa Rosa, California. It's about an hour north of SF. San Francisco, for those of you who are wondering. We have a string fellowship up here in Sonoma County. I've got 16 years and I'm 51. Oh, you know what? Regards, Darren G. I just said string fellowship, but I was thinking, what is a string fellowship? I believe... The spell checker thing got him, and that is probably a strong fellowship up there in Sonoma County. Well, regards to you, Darren G., and thank you for writing in. Carla writes in, and Carla says, Happy Wednesday, John, and a huge smiley face. She says, I'm Carla, and I live in Midlothian, Texas, just right down the street from Frisco. So a day trip and meetings are on my calendar. Well, come on down, Miss Carla. I'll introduce you to the gang. And then, so on a, for a day trip, she's got a, a picture of a car and then there's an emoji of a, <laughs> golly man, she's got tons of emojis of a, I, I think that's a road or a railroad track. And then there's a, a picture of a book. And I think the book is representative of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have no idea. But anyway, she says, I found Sober Speak and Apple Podcast under the, quote, you might like uh, category. Even Apple app knows I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, and, then she's, and then she's got a big smiley face with glasses on it. And then she says, the Matthew M. Surrenders episodes got me hooked as I'm 28 days sober. And then there's another emoji. It's a big party kind of looking, you know, like celebration thing. Then she says, I am 55, divorced, and living my best life ever. God and AA saved my life and sanity. Then there's more emojis. This one is a praying person, and then it looks like a church with a heart around it, and then there's another book. Now, this is another book. I would assume this is either... I don't know, a Bible or a big book or something like that. Anyway, she says, 30 years of drinking is my past. God, AA, and service are my future. Thank you, John, for doing what you do. Sober Carla. And then this big circle of hearts. Well, thank you, Sober Carla, for writing in. I sure do appreciate you. 
Giovanni writes in, uh, this, I love this name. See, when you walk around life and you're just a John, right? J-O-H-N, John. And then you see a name like Giovanni. You go, oh my goodness, why couldn't I have been Giovanni? Perhaps if I ever have another child, I will name that child Giovanni just because it rolls off the tongue and I love how it sounds. Thank you, Giovanni. Giovanni says, good morning, John. I currently live in Los, Los Angeles, California. I am 50, 53 years old and going on a 54 man child, big smiley face. And today I am 15 days sober. Well, congratulations, Giovanni. He says, although I was a relatively late bloomer in my alcoholic career, I did not really start thinking and being told I had a problem until I moved to the States in my early 20s. But looking back, I showed all the signs of an alcoholic mind from a very early age. Going into details would take pages, but here are the, quote, highlights. I grew up in a small town in Italy. Oh, I knew it. I knew Giovanni was from Italy. From a German mother and an Italian father when I was two and my brother was nine months old, we moved to a town on the Adriatic Sea, where we stayed for six years, and then a final move to Rome in 1977. Hey, was Rome built in a day, Giovanni? Just curious. Anyway, he says, even though I've always loved my parents, I always felt out of place, abandoned, that I wasn't good enough. I had a couple of friends in school, in the school years, but I always had a hard time connecting with people and often avoided situations that would make me uncomfortable. I spent the majority of my time reading, watching TV, and fantasizing about coming to the States where I quote, I knew I would become the man I was supposed to be, unquote. At 23, I moved to New York, New York, to reinvent myself. And instead, that's when I discovered co cocaine, real alcohol, and began to create havoc in my life and my relationships. For the next 10 years, I moved around the five boroughs at least a dozen times, moved to Italy in 1997 after selling the apartment my father bought me in 1999, and then I moved back to New York and got married in City Hall to a woman eight years my senior. From the very start of the relationship, it was very dramatic. We fought a lot, got kicked out of the apartment a few times, and she became pregnant, and she decided to have an abortion, which made the second time time a woman decided, quote, I wasn't good enough to be the father, unquote. The first time was with my girlfriend at that time back in 1995. In 2004, I moved to Los Angeles to live with a girl I had met during a vacation three years prior. She was a sweetheart, but <laughs> There's a button here. I don't know. What he, I don't. I can't remember what it's going to say after. But I was just there to get what I wanted. After all, living in L.A. had become my childhood dream. I had made it, or so I thought. Did not matter how many people I had to climb over or destroy 
in my path. Drinking became a real problem. I was unemployed, spent days in the apartment, quote, writing, unquote. But the reality was I would end up getting loaded by the time she came back home from work. We went to a psychologist who suggested that I should try L.A. Excuse me, not L.A., A.A. Well, I did. However, it was next to a strip club. Oh, oh no. (laughs) Oh, I think I know where this is going. So I had the brilliant idea to get a few drinks and a couple of dances beforehand. I vaguely remember climbing the stairs and entering the room filled with people, stopping at the door, uh, stopping at the door, and and just as I was about to make a hundred and eighty, someone handed me a co- uh, one eighty degree turn. Someone and handed me a copy of the Big Book. Somehow I ended up at the podium reading something. I had no idea what it was, and I almost passed out from anxiety. The gentleman brought the bought the book for me and I went home feeling I was cured that now I could drink and then read the book much like in Catholicism committing sins and going to confession to obtain a clean slate. Sure enough, one day my girlfriend came back home accompanied by a friend of hers for support, told me to leave paid for a one-night stay in a nearby hotel since I had no money, and that's the kind of person she was. That night, I went to a liquor store and bought a bottle of vodka, which I finished in a few hours. The next morning, I woke up and once again called my parents for financial support. From 2005 to 2008, I moved around the L.A. area a half dozen times. I made a few attempts to quit drinking, had a couple of car accidents, but this time I was able to keep a job as a truck production assistant in TV commercials. So I convinced myself I didn't have a problem. In 2008, my ex-wife moved to Los Angeles. We started seeing each other again, but in 2009, she passed away from complications following an open-heart surgery. Excuse me. Oh, my goodness. In July 2010, I was arrested for DUI and spent the night in the county jail. Terror does not begin to to, to describe how I felt. Lying on the bunk of the, quote, drunk tank, unquote, all I could think about were the movies about being raped in prison, but mainly the fact about uh, my impounded car there was cocaine hidden in the <laughs> hidden in the pouch of the passenger seat. If someone found it, I'd remain in jail for a long time. Twelve hours later, I was released on my own reconnaissance and immediately went back to my jeep from the city uh, from the city impound in West Hollywood. At the time, I was living in a guest house. When I got back home, I thought to myself that it would be stupid to flush the coat down the drain and get rid of the alcohol. I might as well. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) I understand. This is what they call 
Alky Logic, which I got from Jennifer uh, HK, who was on the podcast. He said, I might as well finish it and get clean the next day. So I did. I spent the rest of the day in my little guest house doing lines and shots of Jack Daniels, even though I'm a vodka guy, but that's all I had in the apartment. I stayed sober from July 10th, 2010 to, to April of 2012, when one day leaving a meeting, I just pulled up in front of a liquor store. I sat in my car for a few minutes, and when I found myself buying a bottle of vodka and a pack of cigarettes, in one day, in one afternoon, I completely erased 21 months of sobriety and non-smoking. Once again, I was able to manipulate my own father to give me a, quote, loan to buy an apartment, both knowing full well I could never pay him back. Dad did not feel bad after all. He is the one who made me the way I am, unquote. And of course, in 2016, I sold it for a profit and never paid him back. Instead, I moved to a condo in Koreatown, and five years later, I find myself once again broke Thinking in details about putting a gun in my mouth and starting to develop alcohol and starting to develop alcohol withdrawal symptoms. On March 17, 2021, I decided to stop drinking. My psychiatrist prescribed some medications to me uh, without the effects of withdrawal, and I began and I began. Uh, detoxing. I started a journal listening to Joe and Charlie, Sandy B, and the big book narrated by Alan Alda. I had no idea Alan Alda narrated the big book. Um, but nonetheless, uh, and for those of you who don't know who Alan Alda is, he was on a big show called MASH for a long time. But nonetheless, and and I was able to stay sober for 33 days. But on April 19th, 2021, I found myself at the supermarket checkout lane, adding to my groceries a bottle of vodka. This time it got so bad, I would sleep all day, wake up at night, go out and get an and get another bottle and stay up all night drinking and smoking alone in my apartment thinking in extreme detail on how to blow my brains out in a way that would not be too messy somehow in a way that would allow people to find my body but mostly in a way that would be successful it would suck to survive a gunshot wound to the head, being de- deformed or disabled. Then I would think about how my parents and my brother and close friends would feel, and this battle inside me would reach a point where my feelings of being trapped were so strong and painful, painful and I had to lock my gun in a safe and hide the keys so the impulse would not set in. I would have a few minutes to think about the consequences instead of just following the impulse or opening the drawer and fire. 
Then on June 7th at 2.15 p.m., I was opening a new bottle of vodka, pouring it into a glass and adding it uh, and adding grapefruit juice. And I felt this urge of dumping it all in the sink. Did not think like that in the past. And I just felt, um, uh, and I just felt, I felt it and did it. And this time, there were no thoughts of regret or wasting a perfectly good bottle. I just did not want to drink anymore. Even thinking about it, once I had done it, did not produce the all-too-familiar feelings of hopelessness and I had in the, in the, what I had in the past, and I knew would eventually buy another one. Not sure if that makes any sense. Oh, it makes sense, Giovanni. I'm not sure if it makes any sense, but as of today, I am free from the fear and the obsession of having to alcohol in my body in order to survive the pain inside. Something happened that moment. Not sure what, and honestly, I don't care. Every day I listen to one of your podcasts. Bill C., Matthew M., and Gary K.'s are the ones that I mostly listen to and can relate to, but I'm slowly widening the the selection to include others as well. Thank you for everything you are doing, Giovanni. Well, Giovanni, thank you so much for writing in. Oh my goodness, I'm so glad to hear that you are on the right path. God bless you, my friend. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. And that was just uh, fantastic. Thank you for writing that. Mary writes in. Mary says, Hi, John. I found Sober Speak during the pandemic when there were no meetings being held and I was looking for something productive to do during the lockdown. It was a great way to stay connected with recovery people. I am very grateful for these podcasts. I usually listen to one right before going to sleep. I really like Bill C. So how do I get on his mailing list? Well, and she says recovery rocks, Mary H. And so, you know, I think about like, usually when I'm listening to something, I, you Excuse me. Maybe I should tone it down a little for those who are going to sleep and like not have so much energy. I don't know exactly what to do. That's a quandary. But as you know, Mary, I replied to you, copied Bill C on the email, and I'm sure he has added you to the list by now. Sue writes in. And Sue says, hi, John. I live in a suburb of St. Louis, Mo. I began my journey on September 17, 2017, and I went to my first AA meeting the next day. I got a sponsor the next week and went to multiple weekly AA meetings on a regular basis that first year. I was out of work, so attending them was easy. But then I got a job and finding a meeting I liked that didn't interfere with my work schedule was tough. I'm actually searching for one right now. My meeting attendance dwindled quickly and my ego came back even quicker. I was living miserably and didn't even realize it. Then when the pandemic hit, my work schedule was 
temporarily adjusted, which allowed me to go back to attending those meetings I had found during my first year of sobriety. I did that for a few months uh, until last year, and then I dove into the steps where I left off. I was listening to AA speakers on YouTube daily, which I really enjoyed, enjoyed and kept me motivated. But then the work schedule went back to normal last fall and the meeting attendance declined, as did my quality of life. Over the next few years, I have been dealing with a strained relationship Over the course of these few years, excuse me, I have been dealing with a strained relationship with my boyfriend's 12-year-old daughter, and it's recently come up, it's recently come out that my actions toward her during one particular drinking episode on September 16th of 2007 may have been the cause of much of the turmoil currently going on in her life. That said, along with this growing emptiness I feel inside, uh, that along with this growing emptiness I feel inside has led me back to the steps into finding ways to connect with AA when I can't go to sleep. I have a 45 minute conversation to, uh, excuse me, I have a 45 minute commute to work, which is the perfect time for me to listen to big book on audio or something I've never done before listening to podcasts, which is why I Googled AA podcast and I found yours. The first and so far only person I've had a chance to listen to since I discovered your podcast was Matthew M. And I just finished listening to the 12 Surrenders today. What an amazing set of episodes to choose from for motivation. God truly is amazing and never ceases to amaze me when he puts everything I need right in front of me. Thank you for reaching out and I'm looking forward to joining your Facebook community. Thanks, Sue K. Well, thank you, Sue K, for writing in. I appreciate you. And for those of you wondering how to join the Facebook community, just look for Secret Facebook Group in Facebook, and it'll give you an option there of being uh, admitted to the group. Last but not least, on this here episode, Deanne writes in and she says, Hi, John. I live in Brownwood, Texas. I've been in recovery for 16 years. I relapsed after 10 years sober and I have a little over five years now this time. I was looking for a talk from Gary K to send a friend when an episode of yours appeared on Spotify. I always enjoy Gary Kay. I've known him for a number of years. I really enjoyed the conversational style of the podcast and I've listened to a few more episodes. Just Gary so far, steps one through two, two through nine, and ten. Thank you for the invitation to the Facebook group DN. Well, DN, God bless you. All right, everybody. That wraps up another episode. You guys are great with the feedback coming in. It just blows my 
mind. And I'm glad we can all gather up together and I can share your stories via the airwaves. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I do this one week at a time. Hopefully, I'll be back next week. So far, I haven't missed a beat, but you never can tell. Have a great week. Love you guys. Feel free to reach out to me with any comments and or concerns. I'm at John, J-O-H-N, at Soberspeak.com. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Ping, ping. If it works, don't fix it. Ping, ping. If it works, don't fix it. Pop, pop.